they won't forget. Oh, I'm not going to lie, I'm all amped up after worship. Is there anything else really that needs to be said? Such an awesome God. Well, if, uh, my name is Chris. Um, I am a pastor here. And uh, by way of introduction, I'm going to give you a confession. Um, I have, like all of us, many struggles. My greatest, though, I would say is I have tendencies to trust myself over the Lord. It's hard for me. I so easily go to my own strength. And I think as the Lord does things in my life and he begins to free me from myself, it is such a wonderful thing. And so, so I stand up here uncomfortable because it's so much easier to have a guitar. I was thinking about just strapping on like a little mandolin or a ukulele. I feel like I can hide behind this little thing. That, that pulpit they have is much too big for me. And so... So I stand up here naked and exposed, having to trust the Lord. And I, I really do pray this morning that's our experience, that I have to do this in front of you. I'm very uncomfortable because trusting the Lord isn't easy for me. And maybe that's the point. This passage that we're going to get into this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, and I love the book of Hebrews, and I love the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and I feel the weight of this, this passage this morning because it is the climax of all of Hebrews, and especially in this chapter, it is the crescendo of what God is trying to say, that there is nothing greater than Jesus and as we will know today and we will see today, you will hopefully today be moved to either of two directions. I long for nothing else but Jesus or this is crazy. But hopefully after today, you're not left sitting in the middle. That the choice is clear, that it is either all Jesus or it's the other. Amen. And so this morning, in this morning's passage, there is no commandments. There is nothing in this passage that tells you to do anything. It is just implied by nature of the, the, the vision that it gives. In Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, we're going to see a picture, a picture of two mountains, Mount Sinai, the one we just read about, and Mount Zion. And so up to this point, have we, as we have been asked to be running this race of endurance in Hebrews chapter 12, it goes without saying, we all have need of endurance, don't we? I always ask myself that question when I read these passages in God's word. Well, where does that even come from? And so this morning, I really have one point. And I don't even know if it's a point, to be honest. So I'm just going to blab about Read God's word, and we're going to see what the Holy Spirit does this morning. But before we start, I need to pray and ask the Spirit of God to do something with God's word this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask, God, I ask that you would do something this morning, that you would transform these powerful words in your word to actually transform lives. Without you, Spirit of God, this 
This time this morning is nothing. And so we ask that you would do something far but beyond we can think or imagine. God, that you would help us feel the weight of your grace this morning. That it would move us to step out in faith, to continue to move forward, to trust you more. We thank you, God, for your provision of your son. Amen. So we have a forward faith. We've not been asked for believers and Christians to sit on the sidelines. We're active participants. And if we're being honest, it's not easy. I don't think I have to beat this point to death. It's not easy this race we're asked to run. And so up to this point in Hebrews chapter 12, we've been asked to run this race of endurance. We've been asked already in Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2, to run this race in such a way as light runners without extra weight. We've been asked to look to Jesus, who is the forerunner, who is going to be the one pacing us. We've been asked to run in spite of difficulties and hardships and to realize that it is God's loving hand in us, growing us, making us stronger runners. And we've been asked to run as a pack, looking out for one, each, for one another. This race of endurance is tough. It's not easy. And there is not a single person in this room this morning that doesn't understand that. Whatever your situation is, we are in need of endurance. This little Hebrews Christian church was feeling it. The encouragement in the whole book of the letter, the whole of the letter in the book of Hebrews is filled with warnings and exhortations because there was drifting. Because there was discouragement. Because there was temptations to go back to former ways. They were struggling to hold fast. They were growing weak, losing hope, losing strength. It says in Hebrews 10, before we get into the chapter 11, before 12, it says, They endured a hard struggle with suffering, exposed to public shame and affliction. They had to be encouraged not to throw away their confidence. And then it says in Hebrews 10, 36, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. And so this morning, I'm titling this message, A Runner's Confidence, The Magnitude of God's Grace. A runner's confidence, which is the magnitude of God's grace. And it's no wonder that this picture that we're about to see, that I'm about to read, is just a picture of the magnitude of God's grace. That's all it is. It is really, actually, the only thing that we can be confident in. And as we will see this morning, glory to God that he has given it to us. This climactic moment in the book of Hebrews that has placed all of its hopes in Jesus. Here it is. Jesus is supremely better than all things. He is the source of our confidence and our hope. And because we have need and endurance, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that is the only hope we have. And it is a very vulnerable place to live, trusting the grace of God. We sing about God's grace, we love God's grace, we preach the gospel of God's grace, but to actually trust and rely on it in difficult things is very difficult. 
And so we come to it in order to run well because we have all need of encouragement and confidence. That is my prayer. This, can we just feel the weight of what God has done? And so let me read the passage this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. It says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order given to them. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen? Amen. It pretty much preaches itself. From Mount Sinai is the picture, although it doesn't explicitly say Mount Sinai. We know very clearly this is what the author of Hebrews is referring to, to Mount Zion. God's grace, the magnitude of God's grace, see where you are no longer anymore and now where you are as a believer. In Jesus, we are not at Sinai, that terrifying scene, but we are now, we have come to Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, of course, is the place that God first revealed himself to his people of God and gave them his laws, his commandments. We read about that in Exodus 19, Exodus 20. It's the place that God came down to earth in a display of fire and smoke and storm and thunder. It's the place we get a glimpse of how, the holy, how holy he is, how powerful he is, how unapproachable he is. At Sinai, we get a glimpse of how amazing he is, but it is a terrifying sight. Mount Zion... It is the site in the Old Testament that King David captured and made the religious center of his kingdom, placing the Ark of the Covenant there. The city of Jerusalem, where Solomon then expanded from that hill and that mount in Jerusalem and eventually built the temple. It is synonymous with Mount Zion, Jerusalem, synonymous with the dwelling place of God. God has made it pretty clear. He, he refers to often, I love Mount Zion, the place when he dwells. Psalm 132 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So Mount Zion is the place that was an actual place in history where King David took, and that's the place that God chooses to refer to. This is the place that I love to dwell. From the place that forbid people to draw near, to a place that pulls us into his glorious presence. From terror and despair to a place of joyful celebration. This is the picture. This is the magnitude of God's grace. From God's holiness that is a consuming fire to the consummation of the ages where we all rest in his presence. God's grace is what moves you from one mountain 
to the next. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. Amen? And it is God's grace, and it is Jesus who moves us forward in faith by his power. So let's take a look at this. There's two really things, observations, I guess. I don't even know if they're points. I don't even know what we call these things. I'm a musician. I don't know. Two observations I want to make. First, it is God's power. It is his unapproachable holiness that is our confidence as a runner. It is God's grace, his power, his unapproachable holiness that can be our confidence as a runner to endure. Look at this picture here. It says, the, the picture he paints, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The scene on Mount Sinai was such an incredible display of God's power and in unapproachable holiness, it terrified it terrified them i'm not going to read the exodus passages here but on a number of occasions when it says on that morning if you read exodus chapter 19 it says that that they came out it says that, that the camp when the moses brought the people out of the camp to meet god they took their stand at the foot of the mountain and the people in the camp trembled the whole mountain shaked Everything shaked, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Exodus 20, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Here's the point. We aren't there in Jesus. For you have not come to what may be touched, this tangible location where you experienced the power and unapproachable holiness of God. They stood far off. They begged no further message. Can you imagine this experience for a second? I mean, this is, I spent a lot of time this week just going like, this is crazy. I mean, you, 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 you come out of your tent, you're feeling utterly exposed. Moses says, stand here at the, at the foot of the mountain. God's going to show up. He's coming down with fire. This, it says that the smoke rose like a kiln. You feel the heat from the blazing fire. You smell the smoke from the mountain, seeing the sun be blotted out. With the darkness, you hear the ringing of the thunderous voice of God in your ears. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You can't go in your little tent. That's not going to help you. It's desert behind you. You are utterly exposed before the Almighty God. In that moment, are you not aware of your weakness and your frailty? Are we not aware in front of this almighty, powerful God? I would be like, and the worst part is there's nothing between you and that powerful God. Nothing. And as we realize our weakness and our exposure and our helplessness before a holy, powerful God, hear these words, we aren't there anymore. We're not there anymore. 
In Jesus Christ, this mountain isn't the experience. Yes, today he is still the same, our powerful God. He is still holy. He is still an all-consuming fire. But you are no longer sitting there unexposed with nobody to mediate in your behalf. Even though God is not, we are naked and held. We are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account is what it says. God still rules with holy power. But in Jesus, we have not come to that terrifying scene anymore where man's weakness meets God's infinite holiness. And at this point, you're thinking, wow, Chris, how does this give me confidence to run this terrifying God? I, I, I believe that there is a moment in, our, in all of our lives we have to first embrace the fact that we can't do it. That we are weak. That in ourselves we are utterly exposed and naked. And I know there is a lot of Christians in here that just stay there. They stay at the foot of the mountain. And they say, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not like everybody else. Would God even accept me? I don't know how I'll ever. I, you look around and you play the comparison game. Can we just confess something this morning? This is that beautiful moment where we all get to say in one accord, I'm not good enough. Can you look at the person next to you and say, I don't measure up. I don't measure up. Just say, I don't measure up. Can we be free? From ourselves and say, I don't measure up. Before a holy, powerful God, we will never on our own be able to draw near and find acceptance. That is the point, I think. This is the point that I think the author of Hebrews is trying to bring out in you. Listen, it's terrifying because God is amazing. And before a mighty, powerful, amazing God, you can do nothing. But we're not there anymore. And I don't think God wants you to stay there. I don't think this is a picture because we're motivated because we're afraid of God. I don't think, I think some of us have this image of God. He's this scary God and the scary God is going to motivate you. I think we have this picture that God is like a father who's trying to motivate his kid who keeps getting out of his bed, his two-year-old. So he puts on a scary Halloween mask and when the kid comes, you're like, ah, and the kid runs back away. I don't think God shows up in this way because he's meaning to scare you so that you run away. This is not the God of the Bible. Like instead, God is, a, because he's a loving, all-knowing, all-powerful, patient, merciful, gracious father, he allows us to realize our weakness to show us we absolutely need him. It is God's, it is display of God's power that must first shake us so that we realize it is only God's power that will heal us. It is the power that shakes us. It is the power that carries us. It is the power that will get us through. His power, his, it is the confidence that we have. But if God's power doesn't shake us, then how can you trust it to save you in every area of life? So for the runner who is running the race of of, of endurance, our confidence is in the power of God that both shakes us 
and heals us. In Jesus, we don't run away because we're afraid. Instead, we run to him because we have need. That's the point. And so this pushes us forward, this picture, of this terrifying picture of Mount Zion. To the best part of this, Mount, Mount Zion. The grace of God's promises for the runner. We have need of endurance and we can have confidence in the promises of God. Look at this, what this says. And this is the, this is the last piece. No longer Sinai, but Zion. Look at this, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have come in Christ to Zion. When it says you have come, which is interesting, because I sit here like, I'm not there. But when it says you have come, here's a little Greek. I got, this makes me look smart, so I'm just going to say it. In the Greek, the verb is in the perfect present tense, which means it is an action that has happened that continues on to this day to say that we have come to something that we have not physically actually come to gives assurance in all areas of life. You have come. You have come. You have not come to what may be touched. But you have come to that which maybe you have not physically touched, yet can currently enjoy the benefits. It's like, I have not, I have come to Canada. I'm not in Canada, I'm California. But in one sense, because of my Canadian wife and all that Canada is, I enjoy Canada through what Canada has produced in my wife. There are current now benefits to coming to something. It's this tension of here, not yet. But it is very specific when the author says, you have come. God has brought you. You have come to these things, which means God is guaranteeing this. So as you are running this race, what I'm about, what he has laid out here is guaranteed you've come to. It says this, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Right now you've arrived at this place that God loves to dwell. So the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the space that Jesus, that God is pleased to dwell. We've come. God has taken residence in this place, which we have come to. This is your permanent residence. Right now you are running as citizens, not running for citizenship. Do you, do you guys get what I'm saying? You are running as citizens, which makes a world of difference in your running. So many people are running for citizenship when it says you have come in Jesus. You are not in Zion. You're in Zion. You have come. You are running as a citizen. And that changes everything for me. The benefits of citizenship, all that comes along with it. Let the joy of your heavenly citizenship give you strength. As you run, when we realize, man, this citizenship, this earthly citizenship is temporary. 
Being an American citizen is nothing. We are citizens of Zion, the place God loves to dwell. Our citizenship, citizenship is there. And to innumerable angels and festal gathering. Really, this is just this amazing picture of God's angels singing, gathered. This word festal gathering is really used in uh, ancient culture to describe these big, great national assemblies and sacred games like for the Greeks. These big gatherings. You have arrived at the stadium filled with the angelic hosts of God, messengers that he has used at what time to bring his messages, chanting and cheering and singing songs of victory. Those angels, you know, who blew trumpets at Christ's birth. Those angels who accompanied God on Sinai and the countless times God has used them to destroy his enemies and the countless times that God has used as ministering servants to serve those who would inherit salvation. We have come to them alongside of them. And probably the greatest party man has ever. We're there. Do you ever run seeing a picture like that? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, you have come. You have come. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly, the church, ecclesia, of the firstborn who are enrolled. All the people of Christ, all those who have faith and belief in Jesus Christ are the firstborn because of their union with Jesus who is the Firstborn. Does that make sense? This vision is of the ultimate, complete company of the people of God. This membership which is now enjoyed by faith. Enrolled in heaven. In Jesus we get to enjoy. Right now we've come to, along with all other believers, membership. Right now. Again, you're not running for membership you're running as a full member of God a full member enrolled with all of those who believe for me when I read this this is what struck me this this is what this means for every person in this room who by faith believes in Jesus we have full membership not partial we're not in probationary period this is not a probationary period we've come along with all those who believe to full membership now I know this frees me it should, at least. It frees me to love people as I should. So that means everyone in this room I must view as full members right now. Not partial. Yes, the people that annoy us. Yes, the people that need grace. Who doesn't need grace? Yes, the people that are struggling. Yes, the people who have issues. Who doesn't have issues? And we've all confessed we all have issues. We all don't measure up. We enjoy full membership and we can come, boldly come along one another and love and respect everyone in their process. As it says earlier that God is perfected by his sacrifice once for all. Those he is perfected, those he is sanctifying. He has perfected already those he is perfecting. It's amazing. So as I look at the people here in this room in my life, I can serve them freely knowing that they are in process and they are in full membership 
right now. And if you're somebody that's sitting in this room and you, oops, sorry, and you struggle, and you struggle with feeling apart, you feel like you're on the outside, you're maybe at that lower level of membership, and there's some things you got to do to kind of get into like the bronze level and the servile level, you know, and you're working really hard to get in like platinum level of membership. This is not what it's saying. It's saying in Christ you have come to full membership along with everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Amen. Does that change the way we deal with each other? That's right. Fourthly, and to God, the judge of all, you have come. You right now in your race, you are running and you have come to God, the judge of all. God is a perfect judge. He will judge the living and the dead. There is nothing that gets by him. You have come to him. There, you, you aren't there. We aren't there in front of the judge because there was some like heavenly clerical error. Like we casually were able to enter into the presence of God who judges all. It says we have come to the judge of all, which means we didn't arrive there by some other chance besides the fact that he sat there and he judged you in Jesus and he has declared something over you. You are justified, paid in full. Amen? Because we run as runners, this endurance, this confidence that I have in the grace which I did not deserve, we run believing that we have come to the judge of all and my sin has been paid in full. The weight has been taken from me and I can run. Paid in full. Who needs to hear that this morning? Who needs to hear that this morning? What's weighing you down? What's weighing you down? Right now, you are standing before the judge because of Jesus Christ, and it's paid in full. Would you run as one free, paid in full human being? Amen? Which means, it says, and then you Romans 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Since we have been justified by faith before the Judge, we have peace. No tempest, no storm, no darkness. Peace. This is a moment as you feel the weight and magnitude of God's grace as a runner. What is there between you and the Lord? Peace. He has judged perfectly and if you have your faith in Jesus and I know that's hard sometimes to believe peace for the runner and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect we have come we've come to a place where all those who Hebrews chapter 11 just talked about we've come to the spirits of the those heroes of the faith you know how he says that in Hebrews chapter 11 Abraham, Isaac, Moses, all these amazing people that we read in the Bible. Like, these people are amazing. I wish I was like them. I, I need, I, I strive, and that's okay to strive to be like those men and women who have gone before us. But did you know that it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 40, it says, apart from us, talking about them, they should not be made perfect. It's saying they also had to wait for Jesus to be made perfect. Those heroes of the faith that we look up for, that maybe we compare ourselves to and hope to strive to be, it was also Jesus 
that perfected them. They had to wait along with us also to be made perfect. We have come to the spirits, to those who have died and gone before, these men and women of the faith, of the righteous who are made, even the heroes of the faith had to wait for Jesus. So they don't have a leg up on you either. Because only Jesus is the measurement. This is what I take from that. Jesus was the measurement for them. And Jesus is the measurement for us. So Jesus must be the one we keep our eyes fixed upon. Always. They were not at an advantage. They were at a disadvantage. We are not in an advantage. We are not in a, we, it's Jesus and always Jesus. And now to do the most climactic part, I think, of not just the book of Hebrews and not just this passage. But to all of the Bible. And we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We are running and it is hard. And you need to hear the words, it is not terrifying God. It is the same God, but you have, right now, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, who stands in our place, who continues to mediate for us always and forever, who has entered in heaven itself and now appears in the presence of God on our behalf, and he mediates, he mediates. This new deal with the Lord. He mediates. So when we fall short, he does not. We will fall short. He does not. We will get weak. He does not. We will struggle. He does not. He continually and always will be mediating for us. So you can run confidently. You can boldly go out and step out in faith and do whatever crazy thing for Jesus because we're going to make mistakes, but Jesus will continue to mediate. Keep your eyes on Jesus and to the last thing, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I don't even know how much time I have. I'm just kind of rolling on here. And finally, it says, we have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember Cain and Abel in Genesis? Cain and Abel brought a sacrifice. Cain's was not super acceptable before the Lord. Cain gets jealous, kills Abel. And it says in Genesis chapter 4 that his, God comes and says, who does the blood of your brothers crying out to me? The blood of Abel cried out for justice because something had been done, calling upon a holy God to bring about judgment. The blood of Abel cried out to God for justice because the wrong thing had been done. And so a holy and perfect God was to bring about judgment. But Jesus, the sprinkled blood, doesn't cry out for justice. It cries out mercy. It says, I've paid for it. It says, I've died for them. Show them grace. The sprinkled blood of Jesus, we have come to that blood that cries out mercy. Give them grace. And for we as a runner, we come right now to a God that's saying grace, mercy. Amen? So 
that's the picture. And maybe some of you this morning, and including often myself, we realize, I have to trust the grace of God. Is there any better picture that you have ever read that fully lays out how magnificent is the grace of God? This is why this passage last week, if you were here last week, it talked about Esau and lentil soup who traded the amazing thing, the blessing of God for lentils, for soup that you eat and is passed out of you and is temporary. No wonder this image comes right before. Let me show you the magnitude of God's grace because I want you to make a decision. Is it going to be lentils or the magnitude of God's grace in your life? Lentils will give you, no, give you nothing. And that being said, after this picture of the magnitude of God's grace, if we don't run with that understanding and that, that, that clear picture of how large, big, too many words to describe, very big, God's grace, scary God, powerful God, unapproachable God, but the grace of God draws you to his presence. Will you just run? Just run. You can run. You can run. You're going to make mistakes. Just please run. Eyes on Jesus and run. Drooping hands, pick them up. I've got them. We tell each other in each other's lives, read them this picture. I am struggling. I'm not measuring up. I don't know my future. I don't know what's about to happen. Just run. I think there's something that happens in the Christian's life when you start to believe and trust the grace of God. Here's a closing picture, and I didn't mean to say this. Peter, the guy in the Bible, the New Testament guy, right? There's this beautiful two stories that are very similar and run parallel. One is at the beginning of Jesus spending time, or, or Peter spending time with Jesus. Peter's out fishing. Jesus is in the boat with Peter. They caught nothing all night. Jesus says, throw your net in the other side of the boat. Okay, Jesus, he, he throws his net, and they have all this fish, and it's like sinking. And, Jesus, and Peter has this realization. He is in the presence of something that's not human. He is in the presence of holy, powerful God, and his words are, go away from me. I am afraid. Peter, realizing who his weakness is in inability, looks at Jesus and realizes that he has God in that moment and goes, go away from me. I am sinful. I am whatever. Fast forward to the end of the story. This is after Jesus has died on the cross. Peter has lived about three, three years with Jesus. And he's learned something about Jesus. because this is at, And this story comes after he has denied Jesus. After he has denied Jesus and Jesus' biggest need. One of the biggest failures. He has abandoned him. He has deserted Jesus. And now he's out fishing again and caught nothing again. This time Jesus is on the shore making breakfast. And he calls out, hey, did you guys catch anything all night? He says, no, we haven't caught anything all night. They're not sure it's Jesus. And he says, try on the other side of the boat. Same. You got to be thinking. And they do. And, of course, tons of fish. They can't haul it in. And one of the guys on the boat, John, says, that's Jesus. This time, what does Peter do? He jumps into the water. He swims towards Jesus. What happened? God's grace draws you 
him, to rely on him, to jump out of the boat and swim towards him. Even after some of the biggest failures in your life, run towards the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? This is the picture that we see. This is the truth. This is the magnitude of God's grace. I know it's hard to believe, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us run and walk in it, but it is the confidence and the endurance that we need as runners. May the, fourth, the thing in our mind be the grace of God. Christians, what is left but to hold fast to Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are able to take words and you are able to take just broken, frail, messed up people and to do amazing things with them. And so, Jesus, I, I just pray this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that this morning, God, that those here who are struggling, God, all of us, not just those who are struggling, that we would more rely upon and be confident and the grace that you have to draw us near, to not be afraid of our weaknesses, to share with the people around us, to gather the people around us and not feel like we're second-class citizens, but we're all struggling to move forward with eyes fixed on you, Jesus. I pray eyes fixed on you, that you would continue, we would hold fast to you and you would continue to be the anchor for the soul. We love you when we praise you. Amen.